Wazi Kwarteng might not have much to say about the pound falling to record lows and the cost of government borrowing soaring. I promise we will. We're going to talk through what it all means. The markets, they've had their say on the mini budget. Should we care? Uh, are these things that should matter to us? The standard left critique of a government policy isn't that the markets didn't like it. We imagine that if Jeremy Corbyn were in power, the markets often wouldn't like the policies that he put forward and implemented. But what's going on now? Should it worry us? I'm going to be joined by an economics expert in one moment. Also, later in the show, I'll have Aaron Bastani on with me. We're going to talk about the latest from Labour Party conference and also the far right coming to power in Italy. Let's get up then the movements that the pound have been making today. It's been fairly dramatic. The value of the pound started falling as soon as Kwarteng made his budget speech last Friday. It dropped from $1.12 to $1.08 on Friday. Then this morning, when markets reopened, it dropped again, hitting cents. That's the lowest it has ever been. It then recovered back to where it started the day. So you can see that chart there ends at about 2.30. Then what happened is that at 3.30, the governments of the Treasury and the Bank of England made their respective statements, which people were assuming would be to try and calm the markets. So the Bank of England said this, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, said this. The MPC, that's the Monetary Policy Committee, will not hesitate to change interest rates by as much as needed to return inflation to the 2% target sustainably in the medium term. And then we've got the statement from the Treasury for you as well. So this is their, their tweet. Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng has set out how the growth plan will be delivered. Our supply side reforms will be outlined from October. The medium term fiscal plan will be published on the 23rd of November and an Office for Budget Responsibility forecast has been commissioned for that date. So what this was suggesting, there is not going to be immediate action from either the Bank of England or the government. Obviously, the bank saying they will take action at some point, but not right now. And that spooked the markets again. So after that recovery um, that you saw then of the pound by sort of half two, half three today, it fell again. So I think we can can show you where the pound is today. At half three, it was $1.08. And then it went down to below $1.07, and it has essentially stayed there ever since. It's not just a pound falling in relation to the dollar, though. As well as that falling pound, the mini budget has set off a crisis in the government bond market. So this is what investors expect as their return if they lend money to the government. This is a chart that was tweeted out by Newsnight's economics editor. And you can see here the yields demanded on five-year government gilts. So before the mini-budget, investors would require a 3.6% return to lend to the government. It's now gone up to 4.6%. So this matters because the more interest the government has to pay on on the money it it borrows, that damages their finances into the future. If you're borrowing on a high level of interest, it's worse than than borrowing on a low level of interest. Um, It's not just the government, though, who are expecting and having to pay higher interest rates. It's also expected to affect households and businesses. And that's because everyone now universally expects the Bank of England to increase base rates. And the markets, if you were to infer from how people are trading what they expect to happen, they think interest rates are going to increase to 6% by 2023. So they're predicting that the Bank of England will increase interest rates to 6%. The political reaction to these developments has been fairly strong. So Sky reported um, this quote from a former Tory minister this morning. So apparently a minister under Boris Johnson. And they said, Liz is fucked. She is taking on markets and the Bank of England. Her, Quasi, Philp and Simon Clark are playing A-level economics with people's lives. You cannot have monetary policy and fiscal policy at loggerheads. Something has to give. They went on to say they are already putting letters in as think she will crash the economy. The tax cuts don't matter as all noise. Anyway, mainly reversing back to the status quo this year. The letters there are referenced to the 1922 committee. People already want her to stand down. The issue is government fiscal policy is opposite to Bank of England monetary policy. So they are fighting each other. What Quasi gives, the bank takes away. So when the government cuts taxes, all that will mean is that the Bank of England increases interest rates. A current minister has also got egg on his face. Chris Philp is chief secretary to the Treasury. This is what he tweeted on Friday morning. 
Great to see Sterling strengthening on the back of the new UK growth plan. So I think he must have tweeted that just after Kwasi Kwarteng started speaking, because by the end of the speech, obviously, the pound had tumbled and it tumbled to record lows. So Tory backbenchers aren't happy, the markets aren't happy, and Tory frontbenchers are looking a little bit red-faced. But should we care about all of this? What does this mean to ordinary people? To find out, I'm joined by Joe Mitchell, an associate professor at the University of the West of England. Let's take these market movements in turn. I've sort of gone, gone through them. Lots of different uh, metrics moving, so we should probably break them down. When it comes to the pound's weakness against the dollar, what explains that and does it matter? Should we care? I'll do the second bit first. We should care because we import a lot in this country. We import fuel, we import food, we import manufactured goods, and all of those things, not all of them, but a a large amount of them, are not priced in pounds in our currency. They're priced in other currencies. A lot of them are in the dollar, some of them are in euros. And the short version is it means that things just got a lot more expensive. You You can expect to see the price of fuel go back up in the petrol stations, the price of food go up in the supermarkets and so on. So that's one of the reasons that we should um, care about it. Some people would say, you know, it's, it's a good thing, really, because it makes our product cheaper. You know, now we can become more competitive and we can sell to the world and our manufacturing will, will boom again. Unfortunately, this doesn't work for sort of complicated technical reasons in the UK. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty much lose-lose for us. You know, some countries do tend to do better from a, a falling currency, but there's not much of an upside uh, for us. Why it's happening is a bit more difficult because it involves sort of crystal ball gazing into the markets and markets are, you know, driven by psychology, by narrative, by profit seeking, by fear, by greed. And you're trying to pull out a story. And as soon as you tell a story, then they do something different. But I would say roughly they're spooked. The, the, the foreign exchange markets are spooked by Kwarteng's budget. They think it doesn't make sense. And really, I think the reaction is, is less the currency itself. It's the fact that people don't, well, investors overseas uh, don't want to hold the same UK assets that they did or at the same price. So you might have, let's say, an American pension fund holding UK government debt as part of its portfolio or UK stocks and shares. They now feel less confident about the state of the British economy, the chances that they're going to lose money on their um investments you know defaults seem to them now more likely so all things equal they're less likely to want to buy things denominated in pounds that means less demand for pounds and the pound goes down against the dollar too as you said about one dollar five one dollar seven somewhere around there at the moment so it's, it's less people actually selling pounds and more people selling things that are denominated in pounds so people selling british things that's interesting um let's turn to debt um, so the cost of government borrowing have risen. This, I suppose, it's easier for people to understand why that's a problem. Why is this one happening? Yeah, I think this is probably more important, uh, at least immediately, than the currency movements. It's happening because you have a thing called the bond market, which is effectively where you buy pieces of paper that say, I owe you some money. So the government writes, I owe you pounds, and people can buy and sell these pieces of paper. And the price at which you buy and sell piece of paper saying the government will give you a million pounds at some point in the future tells you something about how much confidence people have. So if people are willing to pay a million pounds for that, then they're confident. If they're willing to pay only half a million pounds, then it tells you something about how likely they think it is that they're going to get their money back and how willing they are to wait and so on. So the bond market effectively sets the the price that the government has to, to borrow at. And as you say, we saw some truly spectacular moves in the bond market over the last couple of days. Um, there are different amounts of time that the government borrows for. You know, some some pieces of paper say, I'll, I'll pay you back in two years. Some say, I'll pay you back in five years. The five-year uh, rate went from about 3.5% uh, before Kwarteng's budget to about 4.5% today. Now, that might sound like, you know, not much, 1%. But these rates usually move in very small amounts, like hundredths of a percentage point. Traders call them basis points. So this was a hundred basis point move, which is unheard of pretty much. You go back through all of the financial crises, the 2008 crisis, uh, the pandemic, the Brexit, the various messes, nothing comes close. You, you can't find anything, I think even going back to the 50s and 60s, um, comparable to today's bond market moves. So they really are, you know, whatever you think of the significance of financial markets, they're, they're, um, they're significant. 
And I mean, you said it's the biggest move since all of those events, right? But overall, interest rates are still relatively low by historical standards. It's the movement that is that's very dramatic, not the actual level. And I suppose what I struggle to pick apart here, so the interest rate, as far as I understand it, is partly to say, if we're not 100% sure we're going to get paid this back, we want some premium, right? If you're if you're lending to someone who you don't think is going to pay you back, you're going to want some, some high interest on that to, to sort of reimburse you for the risk you've taken. But isn't it also right. just to hedge against inflation? So it's also, if, if you lend someone £100 and they're going to pay you back in a year, if in a year's time £100 is worth less because there's 4% inflation, aren't they going to want to charge 4% on it so they pay you back £104? Because, and, and I suppose for me, the interest rate still seems below inflation. So is this not a negative interest rate, which would be you know, historically in, incredibly low? What, what, what's the relationship between this and inflation? So you're right. People are going to get paid back by the British government in pounds, so they're going to care about how much a pound is going to be worth in the future. And if they're not actually investors from the UK, if they're starting with dollars or yen or something else, which is ultimately what they want to have at the end of the day, and they also care about what the pound is going to do against those currencies. So there's a whole bunch of things feed into a decision whether or not I'm going to lend money to the British government if you're a trader, investor, bond market participant or whatever. As you say, there's Am I going to get paid back? Do I trust these people? How risky is it? What do I think inflation is going to do? Uh, what are the alternative assets I could invest in? And how short of cash am I? You know, how much do I really want to get a return on my money versus, you know, I'm happy to get something lower and just sort of sit and be bored. So there's a you know, really complicated set of decisions go into deciding this stuff. You're right that in real terms, interest rates are still negative. But if you go back two years or something, interest rates on government debt were pretty much bang on zero. So like strongly negative uh, real interest rates. We've seen a really sharp spike. If you, if you look at a graph of um, the yield on government bonds, it's got its really kind of long, long, slow decline down to zero, sort of hovers along zero after the financial crisis through the pandemic. And then you've got an almost vertical uh, line up. So it's not exactly just that, you know, four and a half percent isn't going to cause, you know, a fiscal crisis. It's not going to cause um, you know, a wave of defaults across the country. It's not going to cause the government to go bust. But it's a sign that, I mean, along with the bank raising interest rates, around the world, we're seeing a sort of tightening cycle. We're seeing a period of rising interest rates. Uh, it's really, as you say, the, um, the severity of the, the speed of the moves, which is spooking people and making them say, well, this, this is really a sign of people losing confidence. One, one measure, for example, our bond yields or British bond yields were below um, Italian and Greek bond yields until this event, and all of them have been moving upwards together, but ours you know, have overtaken and, and shot up. So there's definitely something out of the ordinary going on here. And then when it comes to Bank of England interest rates, so that's the one that sort of people will feel in their pockets if they've got a mortgage or something, because if you're on a, a variable mortgage, your interest payments might have been 1% or 2%, and according to the markets, they're going to go up to 6 or or 7%. Is that the kind of thing that does risk a crisis? Obviously, the government isn't going to go bust if interest rates go up a little bit. But if the cost of your mortgage, you know, if you're interest only, then the cost of your mortgage could double. You could imagine a lot of defaults there. Is, is that where we could be looking at more of a systemic crisis and where there could be some kind of financial collapse? It's a slightly leading question there, but can you respond to that yeah. possible yeah, scenario? Sure. No, I think this is the most likely place where the wheels come off this trust quarting approach. I mean, I think what they're trying to do is engineer a kind of short run boom into the next election. I mean, they say that the tax cuts are all about entrepreneurs and giving people incentives to, to invest and make us all richer and grow the pie and all this kind of stuff. I actually don't buy it. I think what they're really doing is, well, it's clearly a cash handout to certain very small uh, interest groups, if you want to put it that way. But it's also, I think, um, they're hoping that this will be splashed around, that some of this cash will get spent, that'll generate a little bit of a spending boom, and that'll you know get headline GDP figures looking a bit better before the next election. I think where the wheels really come off that plan is when Bank of England interest rates start to filter through to mortgages. Now, it takes a while because lots of people are on fixed rate deals. But you constantly have people coming off those fixed rate deals and having to remortgage. Uh, and the pain that a lot of those people are going to be feeling is going to be really severe. Like if you've got a four hundred thousand pound mortgage over thirty years at about one and a half percent, 
you're paying about £1,300 a month. I've got some figures over here, so I'm looking over to my uh, side here. If interest rates go up to 6%, that's going to be 2400 a month. So you're not far off doubling. So we're talking you know, several hundred pounds a month for a lot of people overnight being added to their outgoings. And for a lot of people, that's the difference between the black and the red. You know, That's all of their food money, all of their heating bill gone. So I do think that... I mean, it's very hard to predict what the, the consequences are because so much can happen between now and then. But I think that's where the plan, at least for this little dash for growth, is going to come off the rails because the um, the little sugar hit of a little bit of extra tax. And for almost everybody except uh, you know people on 250000 and above, it's £300, £400 is what you've got you know on paper from this tax giveaway. Almost all of it went right at the top, upper end of the distribution. That's going to be hugely outweighed by these interest in, increases in uh, interest payments on mortgages. Joe Mitchell, that was incredibly clarifying. Um, thank you so much. Very complicated. I'm, I know this isn't complicated for you, but it's complicated for me and much of the audience. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Um, it's also it's going to be a big deal. Like I, I do think on the political side of this, this was crazy from from Quasi Quartek and Liz Truss because, and the reason I think this, right? I'm not an economist. I, it's difficult for me to say whether or not these interest rate rises would have happened anyway, or whether the dollar would have strengthened and the pound weakened anyway? Are there more fundamental things going on here slightly above my pay grade? What I do know is because there was this mini budget that gave away huge giveaways to the rich, and then this collapse in the pound and increase in borrowing and interest rates rose, now everyone's going to blame quasi quarte. You know, if they, if they just sort of kept a bit quiet, not done anything too dramatic, then they could have said, oh, this is the war in Ukraine. You know, what we've been hearing all year. This isn't anything to do with the government. This is the war in Ukraine. This is X, Y, Z, out of our control. Now everyone's saying, wait a minute, you crashed the pound just to give the top 1%, 5% less income tax? You know, that's that's what this looks like. I mean, that is, also, that's not a false perception, by the way. So politically, this just seems disastrous and a massive cell phone. Although, yeah, I think they think that probably the fundamentals mean they're likely to lose the next general election anyway, so they're taking a massive risk. Um, we'll see how it plays out. doesn't seem like it's going well so far. Um, let's move to the Labour Party. Um, their conference is currently ongoing. And Rachel Reeves gave her big speech today. So that was the big, the big event of today was Rachel Reeves setting out what Labour's economic policy would be. But as you would expect, more of it was a critique of the current government. Sterling is down. That means higher prices as the costs of imports rise. The cost of government borrowing is up. That means more taxpayers' money will go into paying the interest on our government debt. And in turn, that means the cost of borrowing for working people will now go up too with higher mortgage repayments for families. And all for what? Not to invest in the industries of the future, not for our NHS, and not for our schools, but for tax cuts for the wealthiest. A return to trickle-down economics, an idea that has been tried, has been tested, and has failed. It's not too far from what me and Aaron were saying on Friday. If you're going to take all of these risks, at least do it for something that's worth it. Invest in something. Don't just give tax giveaways to the rich. In any case, uh, Rachel Reeves went on to try and claim the mantle of economic competence for the Labour Party. Last year, I told this conference that I was more than happy to take on the Tories when it came to economic competence because I know we can win. I'm now wondering whether they even plan to show up for the fight. It's, it's becoming clearer by the day. Labour is the party of economic responsibility and the party of social justice. The Chancellor and Prime Minister, meanwhile, resemble two desperate gamblers in a casino, chasing a losing run. But here's the thing. They're not gambling with their money. They're gambling with yours. They've lost credibility, they're losing confidence, they're out of control. That was the rhetoric. In terms of policies, um, what we've learned from conferences is that Labour will reverse the Tories' cut to the top rate of income tax. So the 45p band will be reintroduced, though they said they, they will keep the 1p cut to the basic rate. So if they were in power, the basic rate would remain at 19p instead of the 20p it was before the mini-budget. Zero carbon electricity 
will be with us by 2030 in the sense that all electricity and will be produced by renewables or nuclear. And then they have said they will invest in green industry with a newly created national wealth fund. So that would fund green industries and then the state would get a stake in those companies. So a little bit like a sovereign wealth fund. Separate from what the leadership have announced. So if the leadership announced them, you know, it's, it, that's labor policy they might get implemented. Motions on the conference floor often get ignored, especially by this leadership. But the ones which have passed, so the trade unions and members have voted for, are a £15 minimum wage and wages rising with inflation, quite significant at the moment because Labour haven't committed to that or the, the leadership haven't committed to that. And proportional representation, and potentially very significant, although the leadership very much sitting on the fence on that one, if not completely ruling it out, I think somewhere between the two. I'm joined now by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, I want your take on Labour Party conference, Reeves' speech, those announcements, what's been passed on the conference floor. Have we learned anything significant? As radical as what Rachel Reeves is saying on the environment and green growth, it's, it's really not that radical. You know, you heard from Ed Miliband, for instance, saying, we will be the first major country to hit 100% of renewable electricity. Not true. Categorically not true. Today, there are countries which have 100% electricity generation from non-carbon sources. Iceland is one with geothermal energy. Norway is another. About 98% of its electricity comes from non-carbon sources. Costa Rica is another. Strangely, Ethiopia is another with um, hydroelectric dams. So not true. And that's today, not in six years' time. Still, obviously positive. Again, with with the minimum wage thing, if you look at the rate of inflation, is it that impressive? Not especially. I'm not here to to bash them, but those are just the facts. It wasn't especially impressive what she said. The motions, on the other hand, yes, I think really do augur well for potentially some of the tensions within a Starmer government if it happens. You know, it could be that proportional representation, electoral reform is a second term issue for Labour. I mean, I think it's always daft to talk in those terms when you haven't even won a first term, but at least this puts it on the horizon. And then, of course, Louise Haig talking about uh, bringing rail into public ownership that's also been said by uh, Tandesi. Those are the relevant uh, people with that brief in the Labour shadow cabinet. I personally heard Tandesi say the same thing at Toll Puddle Martyrs Festival in the summer. I was kind of surprised at how confidently he said it. So I think with Starmer, a lot is off the table with public ownership. He was lying to the membership in 2020. But on rail, maybe water too, I think Labour is still serious on public ownership. But finally, going back to what uh, Rachel Reeves was saying about economic competence, look, if Labour are in a situation where the bond markets rally against the pound, they lose confidence from currency speculators, etc., this kind of talk leaves them in a very precarious situation because you could be in a certain position where a Labour government promising social justice and green growth and you know reinvigorating the state could actually be imposing austerity because that's what currency speculators want. And I don't say that idly. They're clearly going to inherit an absolute mess from the Conservatives if, let's say, they win a a majority in 2024. I don't think that's overwhelmingly likely. I'd say at this point it's probable. So the talk of, you know, we are the party of fiscal competence and probity and also of state investment, watch this space because it's not quite that simple. We're going to go back to the Labour Party conference later. We're going to talk national anthems, huge union jacks, and then also a story on the Al Jazeera documentary. First, though, um, we're going to Italy um, because the far-right Brothers of Italy party have won the most votes, or according to exit polls, um, have won the most votes in that election. Um, So we've got here the numbers according to the exit polls, which, you know, counting, the genuine counting of the votes does seem to be bearing out. Um, So the Brothers of Italy gained 26%. um, The Democratic Party, which is their centre-left party, were in second with 19%. The Five Star Movement with 15.4%. Then you've got the League, that's another far-right party, on 8.7%. Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party, on 8%. What's significant here? is that the combined votes, or sorry, I should start that again. What's significant here? The Brothers of Italy were in an alliance um, with the League and Forza Italia, and their alliance got more votes than any other alliance, and they are in line to get a majority in both houses. So that's the House of Deputies and the Senate. After the exit polls were announced, Giorgia Maloney, the leader, 
um, of the Brothers of Italy, declared victory in front of a group of activists. It seems clear to me that what came out from the first projections is that Italians in these general elections have expressed a clear indication that they want a centre-right government led by Brothers of Italy. If we will be called to govern this country, we will do it for all Italians, for everybody, with the goal of uniting this people, of stressing what unites rather than what divides. Earlier today, I spoke to David Broder, author of the upcoming Mussolini's Grandchildren, which is about the Brothers of Italy party. So Brothers of Italy is a far-right and nationalist party, uh, which is part of a right-wing coalition and which much of its agenda is devoted to what it sees as defending Italy, defending Western European Christian civilization from the left, from communists, from NGOs, and what it really sees as a conspiracy between global elites and the left. Um, This is often called a post-fascist party because it explicitly draws its roots from the post-war neo-fascist party, which was called the MSI. Uh, Basically, in 1946, some of the former leaders of the Nazi collaborationist Solo Republic, which was defeated at the end of World War II, they recreated the party, uh, saying they wanted to create a party of, as they called it, uh, fascists in a democracy. Uh, And this is kind of the contradiction of this tradition, which is that although they were mainly an electoral party, uh, which also had important links with uh, extra-parliamentary and terrorist uh, fascist movements. The idea really was to bring the fascist tradition and its ideas into a democratic or at least electoral framework. And you know, over the years, uh, there was many splits, recreations of the party, the latest of which is Fratelli d'Italia, created in 2012, and it claims to uphold the MSI tradition. Um, so it's a party which now calls itself conservative or often national conservative, uh, and which I think we can say, although it does accept you know, electoral politics and describes itself as a conservative or even centre-right force, it's a party in which fascism remains an important part of its intellectual heritage. Uh, and indeed, almost all of the uh, leaders of Fratelli d'Italia are former members, cadres, of the uh, of the historic, explicitly fascist uh, MSI, and uh, Giorgia Meloni is a case in point. She's she was one of its main leaders upon its foundation. Her and some of the others had had briefly been in Berlusconi's party, but she was someone who joined the MSI at age fifteen in nineteen ninety two. And if we think of what that meant at the time, that meant that many of the top leaders of the party at the time she joined it were people who had fought alongside Nazi Germany uh, against the Italian partisans. Um, So uh, she often says she was never a fascist. I think that's not believable at all. Of course, she was a a teenager at the time uh, then. But even so, it's a a party which remains very much focused on relitigating Italy's anti-fascist traditions, which refuses to celebrate anniversaries of the resistance, and which claims that fascists were victims as well as perpetrators of atrocities in World War II. Predictions are obviously hard, but how how do you imagine it will govern, obviously leading this coalition with Forza Italia and the the League? Uh, Are you expecting any fascist policies to be implemented in in Italy? What would that even mean? Well, it's important to remember that these parties have been together in government before under Silvio Berlusconi's uh, leadership when he was prime minister for uh, nine years uh, during the 1990s and 2000s. And so some of the Fratelli d'Italia leaders were ministers in that government, including Milani, who was youth minister, and uh, Ignazio La Russa, who is uh, very much someone kind of steeped in the uh, fascist tradition, very obsessed with World War II. So already then we saw, particularly in terms of like memory culture or the way that the government talked about the past, open veneration of, you know, saying that the Italians who died for uh, Mussolini count just as much as partisans, this kind of thing. And we also saw them enact anti-immigration legislation, a very severe uh, kind of securitization of the apparatus of border control and so on. 
uh, of course, in your in, place in your question, I mean, one one problem with with, with describing that specifically fascist policies is, of course, that they're not so extreme or outside of the norm anymore. So in a lot of ways, uh, the policies they enact have kind of converged with other sort of right-wing populist and, and nationalist parties around Europe, uh, particularly if we look at countries like, for example, Poland or Hungary, uh, whose governments don't come from a fascist tradition, but certainly are severely anti-immigrant and often conspiracy theorist. So I think what Milani has, has basically signaled during this campaign is that her party isn't interested in you know, leaving the euro or the European Union. And it's uh, very strongly committed to NATO, the Western alliance. But I think that in a way, precisely because the, the government's uh, economic agenda is likely to be quite mediocre, I think that in order to re- retain its popularity and its leadership within a very radical right-wing coalition, Meloni will lean hard into a kind of identitarian conflicts. So, for example, one thing she's proposed is a naval blockade of the Mediterranean in order to prevent all migrant boats from crossing. Of course, one might say that that's impractical, uh, but at the same time, that doesn't you know that doesn't stop them from you know carrying out a severely repressive uh, policy, deliberately sinking boats, which could kill hundreds or thousands uh, of people. Another thing they're particularly interested in doing is reversing the kind of anti-fascist biases that are built into the Italian constitution. So one thing they've floated already is to um, is to criminalise uh, so-called apologism for communist totalitarianism and Islamic extremism. In practice, we can imagine that this will be similar to other legislation of this type in Central and Eastern European countries, which is to create a kind of general and catch-all means of, of kind of clamping down on critics by like accusing them of being a communist. And in fact, Meloni very often does accuse even quite moderate uh, centre-left forces of being uh, violent and extremist uh, and so on. The Italian electoral system favours parties that can form coalitions or electoral blocks, as it were. So the right benefited from this alliance between the Brothers of Italy and Forza Italia and the League. The left failed to form an alliance. Lots of people pointing fingers saying the reason the far right have come to power in Italy is because the left couldn't put their differences aside. Is that a a reasonable analysis of what's just happened? It's certainly the case that the, the fact that there wasn't a coalition meant that the election was very uncompetitive and we knew in advance that the right, led by Fratelli d'Italia, would win. The biggest so-called centre-left party, the Democrats, uh, who explicitly model themselves on the US Democrats, but they failed both to form a kind of broad front against Milani on the basis of you know, keeping out the right and the, and the uh, post-fascist party, but also they didn't re- really sort of mobilise uh, their own electorate around around any kind of social issues, and indeed, it's been some decades since the Democrats were were meaningfully left wing. Uh, in that sense, they're they're much more like a sort of liberal Europeanist party rather than even a, a plausibly social democratic one. Then the other big force on which is sort of seen now as being on the left is the Five Star Movement, uh, led by Giuseppe Conte, who was Prime Minister in uh, 2019 uh, to 2021. And, and that's a very eclectic and strange party because you know it was in coalition only three years ago with the, the Lega, an anti-immigrant party, which really dominated the coalition agenda, and then was with the Democrats. So you know, those parties have a long history of animosity and, and, and really hatred between them. And there are many key issues on which I think it would have been very difficult for them to present a united front, uh, particularly as the Democrats are much more committed to um, arms supplies for Ukraine, which um, the Five Star Movement rejects. Um, then there's, you know, there's also various kind of smaller centrist forces, which also ran separately, who said that they wouldn't countenance any kind of alliance with Five Star. Um, so I think in a way it makes sense to say like, well, if you add together their votes, then that 
amounts to more than the centre-right, or so-called centre-right, in, in fact, radical-right coalition. But within that block, you have very different um, positions. I mean, it's really everything you know, to draw a to draw a, a, a rough uh, analogy with Britain. I mean, it's you know some of the people who are so-called centrists in Italy are really very much sort of liberal parts of the centre-right who would be very much like the kind of liberal Democrats in Britain, let's say, whereas some of the forces on the left are much more radical. And, you know, even in Britain, we saw the difficulty in in sort of uniting uh, those different forces. So, I mean, I think that the problem is not just the fact that the coalition didn't happen, but like a very long-term decline of the left's social base. That was David Broder, author of the upcoming Mussolini's Grandchildren, which is released very soon, I think later this month. Let's move on to, we're going back to the Labour Party. Al Jazeera's The Labour Files shines a light on much of the sabotage that Jeremy Corbyn and Labour Party members were subjected to between the years of 2015 and 2019. An episode released over the weekend focused on the flaws in a panorama episode, Is Labour Anti-Semitic? It was very, very influential at the time, hosted by John Ware, and it involved interviews with lots and lots of former Labour Party staff, nearly all of whom were aligned with factions opposed to Jeremy Corbyn. John Ware didn't really look into that, didn't question um, what motives people might have for giving what evidence to him. And it turns out some of that testimony is less than trustworthy. Let's take a look at this clip from The Labour Files. A description of Marks and Bird's disciplinary interview features in the documentary. The interview is conducted by Ben Westerman, a party official who is Jewish. Ben Westerman received dozens of complaints. While interviewing one member, he was confronted with the very anti-Semitism he'd been investigating. And we finished the interview person got up to leave the room and then turned back to me and said, where are you from? And I said, what do you mean, where am I from? And she said, I asked you, where are you from? And I said, I'm not prepared to discuss this. And they said, are you from Israel? What can you say to that? You are assumed to be in cahoots with, with the Israeli government. It's this obsession with that that, that just spills over all the time into anti-Semitism. Rika Bird speaks to Westerman at the end of the interview. When he says, um, where are you from? Are you from Israel? That's an absolute lie. I didn't say that. With Westerman's permission, the two women record the interview. The, the, the full recording shows what actually did happen. Curious, because I haven't been in the Labour Party very long, and I've certainly never been to anything like this informal interview before. Um, and it's, so I'm just curious about, um, like, what branch are you in? I don't think that's relevant. Okay. I, I hope that's okay. I'm sorry, I, just, I don't think where I'm from is, is at all relevant to, to the investigation. I did ask Westerman, what branch are you from? Um, meaning what branch of the Labour Party, because it was a Labour Party internal investigation. The word Israel never came into the exchange between me and Westerman. So the testimony given to John Ware and broadcast uncritically was that an activist had asked him, um, was he from Israel? Now that would be a very strange question to ask someone who's conducting an investigation. And I think, you know, that probably would be anti-Semitic. Are you from Israel? Why are you, why are you asking him? that. But it seems like it didn't happen. So there is a recording of that conversation. And she said, what branch are you from? Very, very different. And it's worth noting, this, this wasn't a mystery at the time. In fact, the Canary um, reported after the release of that documentary that that recording was in existence. There was a recording that put extreme doubt on the testimony given to John Ware. And that wasn't the only bit of information that was in the public domain at the time that put doubt on the John Ware documentary. Let's take a look at another clip from the Labour Files. Mr Corbyn and his office have repeatedly said that when party members are accused of anti-Semitism, they don't interfere in the disciplinary process. Indeed, the Labour Party said any such suggestion is 
categorically untrue. But that doesn't seem to be the case. In an email, Mr. Corbyn's Director of Communications, Seamus Milne, asked for a review of the disciplinary process into anti-Semitic complaints. There was a risk, he said, of muddling up political disputes with racism. How did you interpret that email from Mr. Milne? The same way that all staff in Labour's head office did, which is that this was the leader's office requesting to be uh, involved directly in the disciplinary process. Our investigation finds that communications director, Seamus Milne, is specifically asked for his view by Emily Oldno, an executive director who oversees the disputes team. Milne is also referring to a very specific case. James Schneider worked alongside Milne and has the full email that Matthews referred to in the Panorama program. It reads, This member is a Jewish activist, the son of a Holocaust survivor. If we're more than very occasionally using disciplinary action against Jewish members for anti-Semitism, something's going wrong and we're muddling up political disputes with racism. Quite apart from this specific case, I think going forward, we need to review where and how we're drawing the line if we're going to have clear and defensible processes. So how this is used is just the red bit. So these 10 words, the great irony is that this is totally correct and is borne out as being totally correct because the Labour Party has actually, again and again, disciplined Jewish people disproportionately for anti-Semitism because it has been muddling up political disputes with racism, political disputes within the Jewish community. Again, I remember that full email was sent um, as a briefing to journalists at the time that documentary was released. I remember actually bringing up how that was taken out of context on radio the following day. And all you would hear, all you would get in response is, why are you apologizing for anti-Semitism? Why are you defending Jeremy Corbyn? You'll defend him, whatever you do, this is Trumpian. Now that was, to my mind, th those are two examples of how that was not a particularly good piece of journalism, right? You should be able to critique it. Also, by the way, if you want to critique the Al Jazeera documentary, you're very much free to. But that was not the tone of debate at the time. If you questioned anything that was said in that John White documentary, you were persona non grata. Um, Aaron, what do you make of the Al Jazeera documentary, and especially this, this particular episode, episode two in the series, which is focused on that John Ware episode of Panorama? Well, I think it's a stake through the heart of the reputation of BBC Panorama, Michael. I mean, we have to remember this documentary in 2019, it was made at an incredibly important, volatile moment in British politics. I think really it was the moment for me personally when it was clear that Labour weren't going to form a government under Jeremy Corbyn. You have to remember, all the way through 2018, the polling was still very positive. Actually, right until the middle of 2018, very positive. The polling leads were very big. Then going into 2019, uh, struggles. And of course, with the May elections, the European elections, Labour not doing particularly well. Still would often come first in poll you know, ratings in terms of a Westminster general election. But you had the Brexit party, the Lib Dems, the Tories. It was a, it was a very strange moment. And this was, this was like a, a grenade, Michael being thrown into the political debate. As a country, we're talking about Brexit, our economic model. And for me, at this moment, having watched the Labour files, it does seem that there was political intent with regards to what the documentary was trying to achieve. That's my read on it. Now, maybe not. I mean, John Ware, as I understand it, hasn't submitted any complaints in regards to this to Al Jazeera. There have not been any legal threats. So presumably, he has no issue with it. I mean, again, that may change, but that's the, that's the present situation. And again, remember, Michael, in 2019, when this was published, it was nominated for a BAFTA award. That's how good this documentary was meant to be. This was the gold standard documentary at the BBC. And yet we're seeing actually when it comes to basic journalistic integrity and quality and professionalism, it was found wanting. Like you say, he's making claims about Labour, about Seamus Milne, about Jeremy Corbyn. No allegedly, no purportedly. He's not corroborating what's being alleged by the people he's talking to with the other side. This is basic professionalism, Michael, that you would expect from Navarra Media, but we're not seeing from John Ware at BBC Panorama, and yet it gets nominated for a BAFTA. Finally, we have to remember with these quote-unquote whistleblowers, my goodness, how ridiculous that sounds in retrospect, 
that the Labour Party ended up paying around £470,000 for their case not to proceed to the courts. That was a decision made by Keir Starmer. That had started before him becoming leader. He promised to put a lid on it and not allow it to go to the courts. And so there was, I believe, £170,000 payout to the whistleblowers themselves, £200,000 to their legal representatives, and I think Labour's own costs are about £100,000. So Keir Starmer swallowed £470,000 of costs for this, of membership money to pay for this. And what we've heard ever since then, and bear in mind Labour are presently £7 million a year down because they've lost around 200,000 members since early 2020. Well, Corbyn was irresponsible with the finances because, of course, there were all these court cases. The complete opposite is true. Keir Starmer paid the best part of half a million pounds to settle a case which plainly seems to have been, at best, a little bit more controversial than he was was, um, suggesting, let us say, uh, when it was in uh, the public debate in 2020. So yes, I, I, I think for me, Michael, look, the, the British media took a beating with the Corbyn years, really, in terms of their integrity, their scruples. But this, from the, like I say, the gold standard documentary series at the BBC, which loves to say it's world class, this, of all things, was actually the worst of the worst. It will be interesting to see, by the way, there's one more episode of The Labour Files come from Al Jazeera what that has to say, because they have got progressively worse. The first episode of this, which aired on Friday evening, terrible. This, of course, uh, or Thursday evening, this aired on Saturday, terrible. We've got that third one, which apparently includes racial profiling by the Labour Party of its members. Remarkable. We should, we should probably say, just on terms of asking for the other side of the story, I'm pretty sure I remember at the time sort of John Ware saying he did ask for people from the leadership side to speak on camera and they declined. I don't mean them, though. I mean the, the lady that was being interviewed by um, Westerman. Okay, of course. Did he go to her? I mean, the activists who are being talked about. Well, I, I, I presume Precisely. because they didn't name her, they didn't need to get a response because, you know, she can't sue for libel because she was an unnamed person. But it was, it was an image she that could was have being portrayed of the Labour Party. But she could have corroborated it, right? If, exactly. if this whole thing was about a quest for the facts and the truth... This person would make this really remarkable assertion. You say, wow, that's really dramatic. That'll have huge political implications. We should check if that's true. Even if you think it is true, generally you want at least two independent sources to corroborate something. By the way, Michael, you know this. That's the BBC handbook. That's how you do things. If you can't have two independent sources corroborating something, unless it's the Press Association or Reuters, you can't say it's a fact. Well, unless you're Panorama, it seems. Well, again, I think they would claim, <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to be nitpicky, they would claim if it's, the, if it's testimony which is being given directly by someone, you're allowed to platform that testimony. My issue with the documentary is it, none of that was contextualized. They, they didn't, I think, obviously, you can put forward what that person is saying, but if you don't investigate the background, then you need to surround that with, by the way, we couldn't find any corroborating evidence of this. By the way, actually, we found corroborating evidence which seems to put this in doubt. And also, you should probably know that many of these people speaking have since time immemorial, um, opposed Corbyn for a variety of different reasons. So you should potentially take what's being said with a pinch of salt. See what I mean? You can platform it, Michael. I'm not suggesting you couldn't platform it. Of course you can platform it. You can't say it's the truth. And look, we would have to maybe watch the whole thing back, but that was implicitly the message that was coming out. And I agree with you. They did go to various people in the Labour Party. There weren't the responses. And I agree with you. That's fair enough. When it comes to the members, and, and there were a number of members who were mentioned in this whole Farago, I think it's a slightly different story. Look, if you're making a huge documentary asking whether a potential party of government is anti-Semitic, it's racist, that's a huge question of profound public importance, you should do your damnedest to find the truth, right? The, the, the weight of, of actually proving that should fall on the people making the film. It shouldn't be, we have this hypothesis that you're racist, but by the way, we're not going to go out of our, uh, you know, we're not going to go that extra mile to actually discern whether it's true or not. That's down, you know, to, to the Labour Party to rebut it. That isn't a documentary. That's a hit job. No, I totally agree with that. And also, I mean, uh, the way that email is completely misrepresented, that does seem, you know, I I don't see what sympathetic explanation you could give for that. Like, I mean, I said at the time, I thought the whole thing was, should not be taken seriously. But if you said that at the time, you were subject to a lot of attacks because that's how the media worked. They didn't care about evidence. If enough people were saying something, they would believe it. If they did have, you know, if, if they didn't see the targets as legitimate, which was the case then. Um, let's move to our final story. 
For the first time ever, this year's Labour Party conference opened with a rendition of the national anthem. God save our gracious King, long live our noble King, God save the King. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the King. So journalists in the room tweeted, this is transformational, no one heckled. Um, the national anthem it was supposed to show that Starmer had done some real good work with the Labour Party. Um, so there was no disquiet or no vocalised disquiet in the room. That doesn't mean um, the decision wasn't divisive. This is what Jeremy Corbyn told the BBC's Nick Robinson before the conference took place. Very odd. Very, very odd. It's never, ever happened at a Labour conference um, since the conferences were first held at the time of the First World War. I find it peculiar and not really necessary. I mean, the conference is there, hopefully, for a democratic expression of party members' views to discuss policies and so on. I just find it rather odd. Odd why, though? Well, we've never done it before. There's no, never been any demand to do it. Um, we don't, as a country, routinely go around singing the national anthem at every single event we go to. We don't sing it in schools. We don't have the raising of the flag in schools, as they do in the USA and other places. We are not that sort of what I could call excessively nationalist. And uh, I don't see the point or the need for it. Aaron, who's right on singing the national anthem at Labour Party conference, Keir Starmer or Jeremy Corbyn? That's a very interesting way of phrasing it, Michael. I mean, of course, Jeremy Corbyn is right in so much as, you know, this hasn't happened for a century, but it's not a moral question. I suppose Keir Starmer is the leader of the Labour Party. Let's try and look at it from his perspective. He's the leader of the Labour Party. Monarch's just died. And he also wants to rebut claims that Labour is insufficiently patriotic. Well, politically, it's therefore expedient, but also he would say it's the right thing because, of course, the Monarch has died have the national anthem. I thought it was interesting that you had somebody singing it, because of course, if you didn't have somebody singing it, and it was uh, being sung by the crowds, then of course, the cameras would go around, it might not be particularly loud. Some people might not even open their mouths. Interesting, Michael, you know, Gary Neville is talking to Keir Starmer today at Labour conference. When Gary Neville played for England, he never sung the national anthem. Same with Paul Scholes. It was often a thing that was sort of laid at the feet of, of England players, particularly those at Man United. Uh, Gary Neville, I think it was Gary Neville and Scholes. They always said, well, I just had my mind on other things. I was thinking about what I wanted to do in the match. And Gary Neville said, actually, the one time the FA wants a conversation with him, this is a guy that got 70 caps, probably the best right back of his generation, um, was because he wasn't singing the national anthem. Uh, so this idea that, you know, we have to all sing it. If you don't, then, you know, my God, you're not allowed in respectable company. Plainly not true. So Starmer would have that claim. Clearly, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, has another claim. So in, in a way, they're both right. I mean, I can see the argument for it being politically expedient. Jeremy Corbyn is also correct that it's peculiar in the historical context. Um, I don't, I, look, Mike, it's one of those where I say I'd like to know what you think. I think Jeremy Corbyn is, is being somewhat unfair in so much as these are extenuating circumstances. The Queen just passed away. She's been the monarch for 70 years. This became an annual thing. Yeah, I think that is strange. I do think it is odd. But uh, yeah, what, what, what's your read on this, Michael? You're the sober judge here at Navarra Media. I don't like it. I, I don't like the song God Save the King, but it's not for me anyway. You know, Keir Starmer isn't doing it for me. So, and not everything has to be for me. So I, I don't find it particularly offensive. If the Labour Party were to compromise on economic policy or whether or not to wave the flag, I would say go radical with the economic policy and wave the flag. Now, my critique of Keir Starmer is that, you know, the economic policy isn't quite radical enough to justify waving the flag. But I, I don't have a problem with them going overboard to say, look, we are a patriotic party and we like the Queen, because if it's not your priority to get rid of the monarch, you might as well go the whole hog and say I'm a monarchist. Obviously, I don't have to do that because I'm a journalist, not a politician, and I can just tell you the truth. But Keir Starmer does, you know, he, he is trying to get elected. Politics is different to, to journalism. So I feel fairly 
relaxed about it. I know other people disagree. Um, I want to play something which is relevant, and I think it was very articulately expressed. This was Mick Lynch um, on the Navarro Media panel on the Saturday, and he's answering um, slightly what's a different but related question, let's say. So he was asked why the RMT cancelled a strike in the wake of the Queen dying. Talk about why the RMT made that decision to cancel that well, strike. we do it for a number of reasons. There are many people in our working class communities that are socially conservative, that come from religious backgrounds, are new to the country, or just don't dig everything that people in here might dig. We've got to move the whole working class forward together. So we need to go into mosques, we need to go into temples, synagogues, churches. We need to reach into those places. All those people used to vote Labour. My parents were observant, strict Roman Catholic people from Ireland. My dad was also a militant shop steward. The two things are not... Uh, different, you know, and we need to move everyone forward together. So we cancelled the strikes because many of our members would want to do that. I'm a Republican. I come from a very Republican background, as it happens, not just in the technical sense, but in the sense that you'd say in Ireland. But I understand that people want to uh, show their respects to the Queen. I don't see a problem in that. That's the society in which I live. I don't just go around poking people in the eye because <laughs> I think it's funny. What's the point of that? Many of my members who work on the railway might have come from military backgrounds, for instance. It's, it's always, there's always been a connection between that, that environment and coming onto the railway because it's a regimented and strict, uh, you know, yeah. rule-based uh, industry. I don't want to go around upsetting our people and our people absolutely supported it. Just be discreet. Keep quiet for a couple of weeks about these issues. And this stuff that was said, I mean, this is why, I, I mean, I'm, I've never been in a faction in, in politically. I've, I hate these newspapers that people brandish. I just think they turn everyone off politics. Uh, the socialism in this country is not going to be won by an ideology-based uh, party. It's going to be won through pragmatic reform of our system. Some of that should be as bold as it can be, and I think there's a, a massive class element to it. But stuff like that, is just going to turn everyone off. That's why the unions need to be in the lead for a period, showing that it's working people, real people, real men and women around this country that want change. And the final bit, I'll let you in, John, sorry. Yeah, no, everyone has to push Keir Starmer, and he expects it. So John's uh, groups and factions, they're going to be prodding Keir, saying, don't do that, don't yeah. give in, or go that way. That's what democracy is. We've, always, we've all got to push him. That conversation was in response to a question from the audience. So it's someone who'd been selling a revolutionary left-wing newspaper who had a go at Navarra Media for apparently praising the Queen too much. I don't remember doing it myself. And then also critiqued the RMT for cancelling the strike, in case you're wondering what Mick was referring to in the middle of that clip. Aaron, I want your take on Mick Lynch's intervention there. And does it have anything to do with Keir Starmer singing the national anthem, I suppose I should add? Yeah, I think it does have something to do with it because we're talking about what are the appropriate tactics on the left if you're trying to change things. Um, and and that's that's true whether you're a monarchist, but you don't really care so much as to sing the national anthem. That's a lot of people. That's true if you're a Republican. Look, I agree with everything that, that Mick said in that in that clip. I did. And it was really fascinating actually to see the response to what he said on Twitter, which was kind of mixed. He got lots of hate from people on the left. He got lots of love from people on the right, conservatives. That was interesting, so quite polarised. Then we posted it, because of course it was our event, we posted it to our Instagram channel. I'd ask people watching this to check out the Navarra Media Instagram channel while you're there, like the page as well. Um, and it was universally positive. And I thought that's just so interesting about how different platforms create different kinds of conversations, because of course on Twitter you can quote, tweet, and reply, whereas Instagram you just either comment and watch or you just leave it alone. But I, I, I think he's correct. Importantly, Michael, they didn't cancel the strike because they're still doing the strike. You know, the strikes, I think, on the first and the second. They pushed it back, and they didn't create a political stink. I, I don't really understand what people thought they should do, realistically. The head of state died. Now, I know that's kind of like an occupational hazard with a monarchy, because you change head of state when the head of state dies. It's not like with a presidency, you know, it's with JFK assassination or something. Obviously, it's far rarer. But the head of state's passed away. I, I kind of, I really do sympathize with what he's saying. And it's interesting, Michael, that, you know, two organizations on the left, which would be viewed as very radical, Sinn Féin and the RMT, have actually, I think, had a really nuanced, popular position on this. And they've won respect from their enemies. And what have they lost by doing it? What has the RMT lost? They still go on strike for two days. 
They still deprive, you know, the, the op rail operators of money. What have they lost? Have Sinn Féin lost voters? No. They've got goodwill from people who otherwise wouldn't like them. That's politics. It's smart. Like you say, Michael, we're not, we're not the ones they need to impress. I'm a Republican. Anytime I'm asked about this stuff, anytime, TV, radio, uh, you know, um, book festivals, I literally start the conversations by saying, I'm a Republican. I don't think we should be a monarchy. I think as a political system, it's, it's infantile. Of course. But if you're saying, well, the Labour Party needs to put, you know, republicanism above public ownership, above increasing the minimum wage, above decarbonisation, I would have to disagree with you. I would have to disagree with you. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, and then, of course, somebody might say, well, it's not on either or. Well, politics is about priorities, actually. So, yes, to an extent it is. I think Mick there really um, only enhanced his reputation. We're very much uh, on the same page here, so we won't concoct a debate for the audience's benefit. If you're violently disagreeing um, with me or Aaron, I'm sure someone will represent your opinion on Navarro Media very soon. But it's, uh, I, I thought Mick was right there, and I'm not too fussed about Keir Starmer singing the national anthem. Let's wrap up there. Aaron, it's been a real pleasure being joined by you on a Monday. Michael, my pleasure. We'll be back with Tisky Sour on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.